0: Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. What's up,
1: what's up, what's up? That's now becoming sort of percussive. Percussive? Yeah, what's up, what's up, what's up? That's true well after the guy did uh, did Get a little sample
2: yeah it kind of it kind of works for me now people are asking for, you know can, can you do a special whatsapp for me? i feel as though i have to carry on the uh, the tradition anyway i can't
1: see you so you'll have to explain what you're wearing what, I, what I'm wearing. Because, you know, well, are you in I mean, casual I, well, I, outfit? I, no, I will do. I go ahead. I'm wearing Doc uh, Martens. I'm wearing... Doc Martins. I'm wearing uh, Jeans and market. a Harrington jacket. I'm a Harrington and over the top of it, I have a very nice Carhartt uh, of the type that I had long before Matthew McConaughey decided that it was the... Uh, the the de rigueur clothing for somebody about to go into space and through a wormhole and this, and, and you're not in the same uh, building because uh, you're in Lurwick that's... I'm in Lurwick because this is the uh, annual Shetland Screenplay Festival and so that's happening well all this weekend of course this weekend so uh, as is always the case at this time of year I'm in Shetland and then I have to spend five minutes explaining to you why I'm here yeah that's
2: right and uh, and you'll be delivering us uh, top guest as well after three o'clock Mark Gatiss and also uh, William Defoe is going to be on the show a little bit later on Now, John Butler uh, has sent us an email. Being very slightly behind on my pod load, I don't call it downcast, I call it pod load. Uh, Listening, I've just caught up with Sir Tom Courtney uh, from a few weeks
1: ago. Oh, theatre, theatre, theatre,
2: sorry. Not only was it a delightfully atypical interview, that certainly... (laughs) (laughs) One one of the reasons it was atypical was because he gave away the whole movie. The whole story. Um, I was struck by the thought, what a fantastic feature it would be if you could arrange a chuckle-off between Sir Tom and Sir Ken. <laughs> Imagine a rap battle if it were on the archers. While Sir Tom's chuckles were not perhaps as prolific, there was a definite quality to them that could make it a close-run thing. I feel this is the kind of entertainment that would bolster support for the continuation of the licence fee in these uncertain times and could not but brighten up even the most miserable day. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting idea. Thank you, John Butler, uh, LTL uh, and FDE. So, what we've, we've we've kind of arranged uh, a, a, a chuckle off Have you done this at enormous expense? Is this we have, like kind of rat wars? It's Sir Tom and Sir Ken to, <laughs> together yes, for at the last, for the first time. Okay, let the chuckle off commence.
3: <laughs> uh, <laughs> Speak for yourself, because. <laughs> uh, it <laughs> <Mate. laughs>
2: doesn't sure make any difference. <laughs> for You're, a this
3: way. You're good company, boys. I must say. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> now is that it? Thanks the the, the great, listening to that. There, I think not only is one a ha 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 Tom Courtney and. Ken, is, a, <laughs> is that I think Tom's laughter is using it as a bridge uh, and he's trying to work out <laughs> what he's going to say next. And I think Ken is just genuinely, genuinely amused by what's going on and having t- a good t- time. Tom,
1: t- t- Tom Courtney's laughter in that is, is sort of, you know, avuncular. Um, but there, I have to say, I think, and this is with all respect to Tom Courtney, I think Ken Branner still has the edge in, that's the chuckle you'd most like to hear in a... You know, in a moment of existential crisis or angst, what you want is Ken Browning going... Yeah, and I, I can't yes, do it.
2: Avuncular voinc- is good, but it's definitely also how long do I have to stay here because <laughs> I, I have a lunch to go to.
1: Yeah, which which actually you know to to one of the the reasons that um that Tom Connelly what was the phrase that, the, that that person used about his his, his interview what was the phrase uh, delightfully atypical. Yeah, delightfully atypical. One of the reasons that the interview was delightfully atypical was at the very very beginning. Uh, Robin, our editor, said to him, you know, oh, it's it's so nice of you to be here. And he said, well, they made me. <laughs> they, are, they made me come. I had no choice. That's right. There was no sense of oh, was fabulous.
2: No, they made me come. Which is, of course, true of almost all the interviews Everyone. that we do. They're all, yeah. They've all signed the contracts, yes. and they have to do the promo. The only person it's not true of it would be Ken Tom Branagh. Hanks. Well, well oh, Tom, Tom Hanks, but also Ken wanted yeah. to come into the studio, and he. There are some people who just want to be here, yes. and we like those people more than. The and, and actually, and, and Jason Isaacs. Of course. Who would come here... Who he would he, come here like a shot. If he wasn't so busy being a tart Be, around yes. the world. Uh, David Kramer, dear Simon Garfunkel, in my younger more vulnerable years, I would listen to your beloved podcast, In Solitary, often on long train journeys through Germany or sogging wet and mildly depressed on my weekly paper routes. Then about a year ago, I started university in the Netherlands. Life was good, but something was missing. Or, as it turned out, someone... Out of the red, white and blue came Rebecca, who moved in next door for her exchange semester and we fell in love. Although she had disliked pretty much every movie I'd ever showed (laughs) her, which is always going to be worrying, she still puts up with me and even entered into your church with entertainment. At first, she only listened to the funny bits at the beginning with the letters and stuff what this bit is, yeah. and fell asleep once the top ten was done, and uh, and now she's actually looking forward to your show. Unfortunately, university degrees have forced her to move back to the US for another year, so now we're in the second month of our long-distance relationship. Could you please say hello to her, tell her I love her, and explain why Annie Hall is not a bad film, but that it's okay not to like all of, of Woody, Woody Allen. Woody Allen. Yeah. Thanks, and love the show,
1: Steve, from David. Well, Woody Allen, I mean, s- uh, even the people that don't like Woody Allen... Like Annie Hall. Roger Ebert's review of Annie Hall said famously, you know, that it was everyone's favourite Woody Allen film. And I think that even the people that aren't Woody true Well, what's your favourite Woody Allen film? Uh, You know that. You know the answer to that. Uh, Do I? Yeah. Love and Death. No, that's my favourite Woody Allen film. Oh okay. Well I can't have it the same then. No you can't. No, you're just you're just you're just parroting what I've said. Oh that's right. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, you can't do that. That's what I That's do. my favourite film. What's your favourite Woody Allen film? Pick an obscure one. Well, I like Bullets Over Broadway, but I would still like okay. Love and Death the most. OK. Oh, fine. Well, in that case, we're in, in that case. OK. So, but, I, but Annie Hall is a, won, is a, is a wonderful film, an absolutely wonderful film, famously found in the editing room, famously began life as something completely different and Hedonia. So anyway, uh, yes, if you don't like it, you just need to see it again. until You need to just keep watching it until you like it, really. So um, I think I think everybody is in a much better mood already because of our chuckle uh, Honestly, I've got a smile on my face as a result of hearing Ken and Tom chuckle at me. Can we do it again? Go on, go on. I think.
2: And I I think we can all, I think everyone pretty much agrees that Sir Ken has it over Sir Tom. Mm. But just in case there's anyone who still needs to get an even bigger smile on their face, we'll play you this.
3: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Speak for yourself. (laughs) Because.
2: It doesn't make any difference.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You're good company, boys. I must say. (laughs) (laughs) Tom is definitely baffled.
2: It's a baffled (laughs) laugh of someone who's not sure what's going on.
1: It is. It is wonderful though, because people do do all the time say, you know, don't give away plot spoilers. Oh, the terrible thing about film journalists is they give away plot spoilers. But I think Tom Courtney was the only interview we've ever done in which he seemed to want to speak exclusively about the final scene. Yeah,
2: that's true. We did have Frank Gardner do a review once for a movie and then explained everything that happened, including the final scene. But of our guests, it's very rare to find someone who wants to explain <laughs> That's because that's what Frank thing.
1: Gardner does. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. you want the full explanation and all the facts, you know.
2: Anyway, that's very good. Uh, we're in a perky mood and we're all set. You're in a perky mood. And ready to go. Hello, good afternoon. It's seven minutes past two. Uh, welcome to uh, a bit of Witt Entertainment between now and four o'clock, discussing movies and uh, latest releases and special guests and that kind of thing. Normally, I would say uh, you can check out the live streaming because it's always entertaining as it flips between me and Mark. But it's only on me uh, today because we haven't been able to take a camera with Mark. To Shetland. Yeah, which is a shame, really.
1: There are cameras here. Actually, if you ask me, I mean, I would have done my very best to fit one in the... I'm here in... I'm in Radio Shetland, which is actually a very, very nice studio. Why are you in Radio Shetland? Because this happens every year. So it's the annual Shetland Screenplay Festival. Oh, I remember that. I think it's... Nine years, I think, we've been doing this now. And so I'm up here because I co-curate it, and it's the most northerly film festival in the UK and this year we've got uh lindsey duncan and carol morley and mark gatis who is going to be on the show at about 3 15 um at the festival and lots of uh, homemade in shetland stuff uh, films made locally uh, uh in shetland and we're showing things like the falling which as you know i love we've got a screening of silent running which i'm going to introduce i know you're heartbroken oh, not to be able to, to to be at that we had uh we had a screening of Undermilt Wood uh, just a couple of nights ago, which hasn't been released yet, which is directed by Kevin Allen, and we did a Live Link Skype interview with him from Port, Port Merriam, which is where he's at the Number 6 festival. So we had a festival-to-festival festival link after the screening of Undermilt Wood, which is... Uh, the film's really, really interesting, really lusty and really fleshy, which I liked very much. Really? Yeah, really, really, lusty and fleshy, lusty bit. and fleshy, yeah. And uh, Reese fans is sort of uh, you know one of the the people. I don't want to lines. see I
2: don't want to see Reese fans in a lusty and fleshy <laughs> movie. Thanks very
1: much. And Charlotte Church, who's uh, who's who's great. I actually I think you'll really enjoy it. I think you'll really like it. There was a there was a review in, I think it was like Screen International, which compared it. To Ken Russell, which is a terrifying thing to ever compare any filmmaker to Ken Russell. And in fact, uh, you know, uh, Kevin Allen said that he was he was thinking more like you know Benwell and Fellini. But actually, I think there is a sort of russellian quality about it, and there is no higher praise. Uh, James and Andy
2: in Tring. Yes, uh, are listening live today for the first time ever because they're putting a sofa together. James oh, okay. and Annie say we have survived the whole moving house experience without killing each other, but it is possible that this might be the ultimate test. So please yeah. give encouraging words to James and Annie and in Tring, who are depending on your reviews to keep on going. And maybe James and Annie, you could update us throughout the programme as to, uh, with, uh, you know, who's done what and whether the legs fit and whether the cushions are in the right place, because that I... dre- self
1: assembly, what a nightmare! I once made the mistake of live tweeting my progress whilst assembling a flat pack sofa fold away bed. You know, uh, you know, one that you get from one of these very popular companies and it arrives with nothing but an alum key and those, you know... Instructions in Swedish. Instructions in Swedish and a picture of a bloke scratching his head and then things that you're not supposed to do crossed out. And I started building it and the holiday finished before I finished. And I had to leave. It was like building a nuclear reactor. I mean, honestly, people have put men on the moon faster than I put that wretched thing together. And so in the end, I just had to shut the door on it and go away and then come back a month later, and finish building the sofa bed. So if you're listening to the show and you manage to get a sofa built within the two hours that the show is on, you are really going it, some.
2: Now, here's also someone who's going it, some. This is Flora Shedden. Now, she sent us an email. Uh, this is Flora Shedden. She is currently in Bake Off. Yes. Now, we mentioned her um, last she's week. She's a fan.
1: She's a fan, she right?
2: She is a fan. Uh, Hello, we... Flora. Yes. Hello, Flora. Thanks very much indeed for, uh, for, for being there. I'm writing seeking advice. Recently, I've had to do lots of Bake Off interviews, and the following three things always come up: food, Ovs, Flora margarine, again Ovs, <laughs> and films. I am passionate about them all, except maybe the yellow spread. And so then comes the tortuous question: yellow spread. What is my? F- yeah, have you got any yellow spread? I have- <laughs> please, I on the what is my favourite foodie film? Now, so far. I've said, I'm, uh, I am love when Tilda Swinton causes scandal by sharing soup recipe with her young chef lover. It's unbelievably beautiful to watch too. The Ipcris file, Michael Caine being a foodie hero and Len Dayton securing his title as the coolest man about town and the trip for being one of the best things I've ever seen. Um, what is The Good Doctor's advice? When it comes to foodie films, I would quite like to give a different answer to the bored journalist. This is uh, Flora, the scared one with the fringe off the telly and devoted wit attainee.
1: Well, I mean, you know, the obvious answers are, you know, Babette's Feast and, you know, Big Night and Lunchbox and Jiro Dreams of Sushi and Chocolat and all that sort of stuff, Tampopo. But uh, you could either go for motel hell. What is it that makes their meat taste quite so good? Although you don't want to know hundred well, well, Hang on,
2: hang on. Yep. In Motel Hell, it's, it's a
1: horror movie, Simon. What right. do you think? Is it like the Crossroads Motel? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like um, uh, Sweeney, Sweeney Todd, and what's the secret of their pies? Hundred Foot Journey. You were a fan of, weren't you? You liked Hundred Foot Journey. Yeah, well, you know, it, uh, Helen Mirren came in,
2: and I thought it was a. Uh, it was the food was fabulous, and it was an entertaining. Idea. You know, it was one food snobbery.
1: It was certainly a a, a a a film that you didn't want to watch on an empty stomach because it was like sort of you know food erotica, wasn't it? It was yeah. like everywhere you looked, it was really sort of lovely vegetables being cut beautifully. Actually, the um if you really want to bamboozle the journalist, suggest to them uh, la grande bouffe. Um, which is the the Marco Freire film from the mid-70s, which is sort of is very satirical and very strange and a very tough watch, very controversial, about a group of people who get together uh, in a villa for a weekend and decide to eat themselves to death. Right, that's probably not what she's thinking of. I no, but, that, but you know, if she said she's bored with always telling the, the journalists the same thing, tell them that. How about Babette's Feast? Yeah, I said that's that's one of the ones that would be an obvious answer. That was one of the ones that I listed well, very she's early lo- on. Well,
2: she's looking for those kind of things, you know. that's uh, by the way, Flora, um, for that you owe us a cake, I think, because we're not just
1: doing this for free. So, if you, we like cake, we do like cake. So, if you do that, that would be very nice. Anyway, so- somebody suggested that when we said we like cake on the show last week, that it was like a, a shout out for people to send in cake. No, no I think TMS uh, has got that sewn up. Is
2: I noted, pardon me, Test Match Special. Oh, sorry. OK, nope. moving on then. OK. Right, so anyway, so this subject of food and baking and all that kind of stuff with movies came up on our Facebook page a couple of days ago. So here come... So You can add these, Flora, by the way. We're devoting the whole opening section of the programme to you. Um, Brave Tart,
1: as Valerie Kaye suggests. It's an anniversary of Brave Heart, incidentally. It's been on the... Um... Owen Kowalski uh, suggesting SpongeBob Square Cake. <laughs> Ben,
0: really
2: ben Keeler's suggested profiterole Rollerball and <laughs> uh, Nadeem Rasvi uh, Knight of the Living Bread um this this is radio 4 comedy type David Street has suggested uh, Bram Stoker's spatula <laughs> t- t- <laughs> Tinker Tailor Soldier Sponge <laughs> Got to like that one thank you Robert Cullen The talented Mr Kipling Stephen Yeardley. I'll just leave it with this one. Uh John Carter of Marzipan <laughs> and David Street, which would be better than the original. Yes. Uh anyway, any other help for Flora Shedden, all gratefully received. i just say that my favourite of those is Tinker Tailor Soldier Sponge. That, because it Because you could probably make a movie based on that. <clears throat> uh, right, so Box Office Top Ten coming up in just a second. Yes. However, before before we um before we get there. Yes. Uh I've got some some thoughts on Trainwreck, because Trainwreck isn't in the top ten.
1: No, and I haven't seen it, so I right. will, I'll yeah. sort of step but
2: back this is, from the... This is a reaction to um, uh, to last week uh, from Cecy Golding. Mm-hmm. could be Cece, but I think it's Ceci. Yes, because it's Cecilia, so Ce- Cecilia Golding. In the name of BBC Impartiality, I thought I'd send this in. To the masculinist emailer last week, he wrote in complaining about the depiction of men in Trainwreck. If I wrote snarky emails every time I felt women were depicted as weak subservient or walking doormats in a film, I would do nothing but write emails. The whole point of Trainwreck, imperfect though it may be, is that it attempts to reverse some of the arbitrary gender norms that have developed under centuries of patriarchy. The truth is the real world is made up of a whole spectrum of stronger men and women and weaker men and women. The sooner this is reflected in cinema, the better. And for this, I'm grateful for Trainwreck. Also, I thought it was pretty funny. Uh, John in Twitter, Very good letter. I write in response to the gentleman who was tired of Mark's feminist views and felt a masculinist review of Trainwreck was necessary last week. It wasn't. To dismiss feminist readings of films and say that men's views are underrepresented or that men are unfairly portrayed in movies is clearly incorrect. The vast majority of cinema is made by men for men. In last week's top ten, only two live-action films had female protagonists one of which was a male fantasy manic pixie dream girl. None of the films (laughs) were directed by women. In terms of male representation, there was The Man from Uncle, Suave, Mission Impossible, Daring Action and Pixels, Schlubby Everyman. So to claim that films represent men badly is mansplaining nonsense. We need films like Trainwreck and we need feminist views. Of course, all views are welcome. All opinions welcome, but yeah. not always needed. Yeah, yeah. I Can always I... look forward to more of the good doctor's pinko liberal agenda, of
1: which there is much on. A Can I just say that you did, you did notice that when when you read that letter out last week, I didn't jump down your throat. I just let it. Well, you
2: hadn't seen. I I think that's good because you haven't seen the film, and so therefore, but... no,
1: no. But, I, but and, and as you say, other other opinions are available. All, all be they in this case, clearly wrong.
2: I think I have mentioned before that there's a very, very well-known and well-established and esteemed BBC journalist who was presenting the phone-in uh, of a weekday on Five Live, Who and they were discussing I think they were discussing racism and up, just up to the news, said, give us a call however obnoxious your views are so, you know, we're just saying, you know, if you whatever you want to send in, you can uh, email mayo at bbc.co.uk Should we do the top ten? As <laughs> yes, you, as we, you chortle, we, probably, we
1: probably should do. As you chortle there. Yes.
2: I like a Shetland chortle. Yes. Um so this 45 years is it number 10 which you, uh, you know I really like
1: I really liked I know you did too. Um the, the interesting thing about it is, it is that you know it's a uh, it's a, a, a small film, a homemade film, but it has been rapturously received by critics, and rightly so. And I've had loads and loads of tweets from people who've been to see it uh, during the week who've been really knocked out by it. Now, just one or two, one or two distant voices, people saying, you know, I didn't like it, I didn't think it, it, it was anything like as good as you, but the vast majority, and this is not just in, I know that whenever I say that, you imagine that I'm just kind of, you know, massaging the figures. Uh, genuinely, the vast majority of people that tweeted say they'd seen it said they were really knocked out by it. They really, they, they you know, it was, it's such an interesting piece. When Tom Courtney came on the programme and we were trying to get him not to talk about the ending, everyone is obviously talking about the ending, what does it mean? But the lovely thing is, it's not a film that can be spoiled by plot. It, I thought it was a terrific adaptation of a short story. If you read the short story, you see just how much, I mean, again, Tom Courtney said this, just how much Andrew Hay has actually brought to that and drawn out individual threads. It's a film about the past and present coexisting and not in a, a happy way fantastic performance by charlotte rampling some people are saying career best and i think that may arguably be true but i what fascinated me most about it was the way in which it was directed the very the use of uh, of song in the film the way in which songs like stagger lee don't just turn up by mistake it almost plays out like a and thriller there is a sense of threat of something buried lurking all the way through it. I thought it was really fascinating. Uh, Catherine May
2: on this email, this is exactly the sort of film I love, but that no one in my family will go and see with me. I found Why? It, why why? I found it I found it devastating and frankly its effect was much more frightening than many a so-called horror movie. Mm -hmm. With a cast like this, I expected a masterclass in acting. What I didn't expect was the excitement of having my loyalties pulled back and forth and the feeling that these people were so real that I could turn and find them sitting next to me in the theatre. I know these people, and I guess that's what made the final scene so touching and chilling. Thankfully, I knew... Almost nothing about the twists and turns of the film before going in. However, I have subsequently read at least one review that gave every scene away. Presumably that was well, as Tom Courtney. Yes, yeah, so exactly. That was Tom. Presumably the writer thought that this small character drama wouldn't be harmed by my, by plot spoilers. I don't know what the movie journalist etiquette is on this, but I would have been seriously disappointed to have known the whole story of Jeff and Kate, as provided <laughs> in one particular newspaper article before I'd gone in. Um. Tom Nutting. I've just returned from the brilliant Phoenix Arts Centre in Leicester after watching 45 years, bought a ticket expecting to be one of maybe five or six people interested in the latest art house fair, but was pleasantly surprised to find the screen packed to the rafters. I'm 27 and it's very possible that I was the youngest person in there by 30 odd years, but I can only hope that this is being emulated across the country as it truly deserves to be seen by as big an audience as possible. I thought the film, like Charlotte Rampling's performance, was outstanding, measured, heartbreaking, perfectly understated. There is one scene in particular that takes place in a certain part of the house that is utterly breathtaking in its use of light and its perfect
1: marriage of performance, cinematography and direction. I thought it was extraordinary. Can I just say I, I say this time and time and again, I am constantly knocked out by the quality of the uh, letters that we get and uh, people doing film criticism. Uh, I think one of the reasons why, than why,
2: why you might go and see this movie and think I know these people is you mentioned this last week. is the naturalistic dialogue, the the the, the script is fabulous. It, yeah,
1: it really is. But you should you you should read the short story, which I you know I I was intre- I had seen the film first and then I read the short story because Tom Courtney said it is just a sliver, a shard of a story, and um. But it's 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 really fascinating how much is in there. And then what's you know how they've changed it and what's missing? I th- I yeah I love it. The, the dialogue's very naturalistic, but everything about the choreography of the way it's directed, nothing is out of place. Forty-five years is number ten. Uh, Minions is at number nine. I think we kind of we've kind of done all that. Yeah, ten weeks in the top ten. Ten weeks in the
2: top ten. Paper uh, Paper Towns th- is at number well I haven't eight. seen it and we have kind of covered it. You just you were just I reading have this. Out. I do have this from Ben Holmes. Go ahead. Uh, this was a real surprise for me. I didn't expect to love it, but it deconstructs the myth of the manic pixie dream girl really well. And Cara, is it? um De, Delavine. Delavine. Is that right? Yes. Is that who's in it? Yes. yes. Cara Delavine. Yes. a fantastic screen presence. Cara Delavine, I think, as everybody knows. I mean, come on. <laughs> what did you say? Well, you know, in the original French, I think I was just trying to be authentic. But I
1: haven't seen it yet, so it's it's one I have to catch up with.
2: What I love most, though, says Ben Holmes, is the wonderful portrayal of the friendships and relationships in the film, especially when they go on the road trip together. This is when it really lights up. It becomes warm, funny, utterly charming film that had me grinning from ear to ear. I will continue to love and support your show, says Ben Holmes. Thanks, Ben.
1: Uh, Sinister Two is at seven. It's kind of a you know rehashing the themes of Sinister One without the sense of edge, certainly without the charismatic leading character, and you you it's just a sense of I have seen all this before done more effectively. I had some problems with the first film, although I still have a, a soft spot for the first film because it provoked a very interesting discussion between me and, and Stuart Barr, who has subsequently become a very a good film critic friend. But there's not much to recommend it. Is it actually sinister? No, it's no, not. Sorry. Actually, that's a, they should have called it unsinister. There you go. Uh,
2: Man from Uncle is at number six. And again, this is the other one I haven't seen. Right, Velika Yankova in Ghent, uh, in Belgium. My name is uh, Velika. Yeah. A recent devotee to your church uh, and your radio programme. First of all, I would like to thank you both for helping me soldier... Through, you'll see where I'm going in this. Yes. Night, ..through a couple of sleepless nights, working on my architecture model for school. Come Monday afternoon, all done with drawing and cutting foam and my fingers, the jury went better than expected. I knew I should reward myself with some cinema time. Sleeping is pretty much my favourite thing to do, but I, uh, but it should say a lot about my love for movies that I chose the man from uncle instead of the much-needed and overdue nap. And boy it was worth it it's only the Sherlock Holmes movies uh, that I've seen by Guy Ritchie but I do remember the great framework and cinematography of those as well so again not really surprised I'm pleased to say that The Man From Uncle did what I expect from movies it entertained me super likeable characters Witty dialogue, stylish outfits. The music made me dance in my seat a couple of times. And that shot with the phone camera boat chase scene was extremely entertaining uh, and funny to watch. All in all, a great time in the cinema, Mark. I'm
1: kind of quite looking forward to it because I've really warmed to Guy Ritchie ever since the Sherlock Holmes movies. Um, you know, so I'm, yes, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Although uh, somebody who I know and respect very well and who know where they were I went, it's all right. It's not a Man from Uncle, though.
2: <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, Pixels is at five. Awful. Uh, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Is it number four?
1: It's astonishing that that series is still running uh, with as much force as it is. It's very efficiently put together. It certainly no doesn't make any great breaks uh, from the past. The stunt sequences are well done. Uh, they've they've slightly toned down the quirky comedy edges, which is not a bad thing. I enjoyed it. I mean, it was it it was absolutely by numbers summer blockbuster popcorn fare, and I thought it was fine. Uh, Matt Lodge on an email this is
2: an action film everyone would expect from Mission Impossible I believe the diverse use of environments such as Morocco made it all the more enjoyable the film made us think wonder and feel emotionally engaged uh In the fist-to-fist action, it was a classic that always made the audience wonder what happens next. Simon Pegg uh, still shone with his comedic and heartbreaking scenes as well as Rebecca Ferguson with an outstanding emotional and intense performance. Would you want more, Mark? Would you like another Mission Impossible movie? You know, I I wouldn't mind.
1: I mean, because it's funny, it just doesn't... It it does feel like it's you know of a piece but it doesn't feel like you're exhausting your patience with it it's it's like an ongoing series it's like and i'm not comparing the two things it's like james bond there's not a point at which you go okay i've had enough of this it's just it's just an ongoing franchise that's kind of you passingly fun James Bond not far away? No, 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 yeah, the new James But, but yeah. Bond itself is a whole other thing and I am not for one moment saying that the full Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible movies is, is a comparis- comparable with the James Bond franchise. I was just using it as a cheap comparison.
2: Number three this week is Hitman, Agent 47.
1: I mean, yet more proof that uh, video games do not great movies make. Uh, this is a reboot already of the big screen series and it, it you just end up thinking... Yeah, okay, fine. It's They haven't learned any of the lessons from, you know, how it... it there is a possibility that Duncan Jones is about to make a good or has a, bad, a, a, a good movie from a video game. But the problem with most movies based on video games or inspired by video games is that they, they lack any kind of uh, emotional core. And in this particular case, it's just a series of you, you know, stunt sequences with almost no core whatsoever. And it is, it's it's kind of dull. After a while, the, the the runny, jumpy, you know, car-y stuff, it just it just gets dull. Uh, Joel Katzen on this While on holiday in Ottawa I
2: decided to check out the new Hitman movie Being a fan of the games Although I didn't have a very high expectation going in I was still disappointed
1: (laughs) On the whole the movie They should put that on the poster I didn't have a high expectation going in But I was still disappointed The movie
2: didn't capture the spirit of the original games And just came across as a very unoriginal Generic action movie During the first 20 minutes I kept thinking to myself I liked this better when it was called The Terminator. While <laughs> it wasn't the worst movie I've seen this year, I certainly didn't enjoy it very much. On a brighter note, earlier in the day I saw Shaun the Sheep, which I missed which in the is UK lovely. and has only
1: been out in Canada for a while. I had a, I had a much better time and I laughed myself silly. So well, there of course you, you did, because, because Shaun the Sheep is made with love and attention and affection by filmmakers, uh,
2: you know, the, proper yes. filmmakers. So go see that if you had to yeah. choose. Uh, Michael Veal, I kept obsessing about Rupert Friend's haircut. During Hitman, Agent 47, because it's wrong. Any fan of the Hitman games knows that Mr 47 is bald. bald. Along with his barcode, the famous assassin's complete lack of hair is his trademark. Mm. Rupert Friend was good in start-up. Unfortunately, he was miscast in this film and brought no danger to the part of a much-loved video game anti-hero.
1: They went, they went for full bald with the original uh, movie, uh, which then didn't. But then I have to say, although it they, they, they was more follically correct, it wasn't much better. So the UK's number one movie is Straight Out of Compton. Oh, you missed Inside Out,
2: but oh, the, yeah, yeah, okay. it's brilliant I and wonderful, and everyone has to
1: see it. It's fine, it's okay. I think, Inside
2: you know, Out is at number two. It's Brilliant
1: and wonderful, and everybody has to see it. Thank you. Number one is Straight Out of Compton. So, the good things about Straight Out of Compton is it's obviously made with you know proper insider knowledge. It does have uh, it does have the detail that comes from you know being made with the with the authorization of many of the people involved, um, and it tells its story in very very. St- straightforward sort of rock pick generic terms you know the rise of the band their, their 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 roots and then their original recording sessions and then everything falling out and then very quickly it becomes very interested in contractual negotiations and contractual wrangles Paul Giamatti as uh, the manager who's sort of at the heart of all this kind of contractual stuff and then whilst all the political stuff is going on in the background whilst the LA riot stuff is going on while the footage of Rodney King is going the movie key going back to well, this record label boss and that record label boss and this contract and that contract and it, it's peculiar I, I mean it's it's well made it's too long it's two and a half hours and it plays out with with real punch and certainly the life The live performances are punchy and the music still sounds urgent and and aggressive, but there's no question that it skims over any of the more controversial uh, elements of of the NWA story. That you kind of expect. What's less expected is that it should kind of sidestep the really interesting, you know, socio-cultural stuff which is going on all around it and spend so much time having people in offices arguing about contracts. Uh, from our Facebook page,
2: Nima Satode, Straight Out of Compton has the potential to be a memorable and important musical bio- biopic, but it stays away from difficult questions yeah, really and discussions for the most part. It's well made, well shot movie that will be praised for its relevance and strong cast, but won't be the full story that we all deserve to see. Hip hop fans will love it, and casual movie goers will find plenty to enjoy. Maybe that's all that matters at this stage. Dan Cook, uh, also on our Facebook page, is someone who has no knowledge whatsoever about rap music i found straight out of. Compton to be an engrossing and very interesting film that may well have followed traditional biopic tropes, but managed to camouflage them with focused direction and terrific performances. Sarah Cunningham, a lead brick in the Year 2 Nativity. Uh, (laughs) They're her credentials. First note here was that this performance was packed. I hope that this was because Newkey was secretly full of other devotees of the reality rap movement rather than a reflection of the dearth of alternative films of entertainment. I was probably wrong. Every single person left as soon as the lights came up, ignoring the excellent tune accompanying the credits. Other than this slightly disheartening event, I had a great time. The thing was straight out of Compton is that it would have been almost impossible not to make a very watchable film. It tells the gun battles and tanks to raucous parties with lots of gold dipped nudity, story of a group of guys who spend the rest of the time making really great beats. Is that, is that all? Strictly necessary, would you say, Mark?
1: Well, I mean, I you know, it's certainly there is nothing in the film anywhere that challenges the, the sort of rampant misogyny of the story, and I, I mean that that I think is definitely a problem uh, because it's it's just it's just presented as if it's wholly unproblematic, anyway, which it clearly isn't.
2: Sarah says, "I wonder if the film studio, if it wasn't so reliant on the goodwill of the individuals involved for licenses to use the music, without which this film would be a bit throwaway, uh, they felt unable to put in anything which might be at all controversial." It's a very nice way to hear your favorite songs in wonderful surround sound whilst watching something much better than most music videos is it boys in the hood not even close no
1: not even close and it's interesting of course because the subject of boys in the hood does come up but no it is in, and actually that's when you think because that is interesting because John Singleton was originally earmarked to direct it a few years ago he had, he was having conversations i think with Ice Cube about him and and i think he would have made a movie with you know which managed to grapple with some of those things rather better uh, Flora Shedden started the show off, her off Bake off, uh, who wanted Mark to recommend
2: movies with food because it's the only thing... That, I mean, ge- uh, some journalists often ask just the same questions. Uh, no, what, are you saying they don't, your, they don't fully prepare, Simon? What's your favourite food-related movie, they keep asking Flora. So uh, we had a whole bunch of suggestions. Hilda uh, says the best movies regarding food is definitely the Godfather series because all they do is eat, bake pasta and then eat again. Well, that's not quite what they... There's a, there's a little bit of killing in there yeah uh, but anyways there is also a, a, a lot of food uh also um with apologies to graham garden bring me the crisp bread of alfredo garcia <laughs> tinker taylor soldier rye tinker taylor soldier good. Pie. Very good this is alad meredith mike nottingham catch me if you flan <laughs> the da vinci that's good the da vinci cod yeah, yeah judith in hampshire none of them as good as tinker taylor soldier sponge no. Which of course is not about. Is, okay. and, that is, and that is a real high watermark. Um, so 85058 mayor at bbc.co.uk uh, Mark will be doing some uh,
1: some big reviews. What are the main reviews you're going to be doing
2: in this hour? Uh, me,
1: and Earl, me and Earl and the Dying Girl, uh, uh, Transporter Refueled, obviously without Jason Statham. Uh, I think we'll try and get to Cartel Land if we have time. Uh, Mark Gatiss will be with you in Shetland Roundabout quarter
2: past three. But uh, first of all, uh, our first guest, special guest is Willem Dafoe, who's about to star in a kind of well it's it's a biopic but it's well you'll hear him give all the details as to the reason why it's not quite a biopic uh, in just a moment we'll speak to Willem after this here's a little clip from his new movie pasolini
3: I, I make films that way i express myself if my expression is alienated so what at least i'm expressing myself as free as possible i don't want to talk about myself anymore i've already said too much everyone knows I pay the consequences for my actions. Maybe I'm wrong, but I just want to say that we're all in danger. If this is your view of life, how do you plan to avoid the danger and the risk that you describe? It's late. Uh, We should stop. Uh, Perhaps you could leave the questions with me. I think some of the points are flat. I'd like to think about them. I feel much more comfortable writing than talking like this. I can make some notes and get them to you tomorrow. Do you have a title? What about "We're All in Danger"?
2: And that's a clip from Pasolini. And I'm delighted to say we've been joined by William Defoe, who is Pasolini. William, hello. Good afternoon.
3: Good afternoon.
2: Thanks very much indeed for for joining us. Tell us how you got involved with the
3: movie. Well, I had worked with the director Abel Ferrara before, and. Um... Basically, we knew we wanted to make a film that had something to do with Pasolini. We didn't know exactly what. There was no script, so we kicked around some ideas. And, uh, you know, this is uh, the result of a process uh, deciding how to frame our story and uh, make it.
2: So what was it that made you think that you wanted to make a movie about Pasolini? What is it that you wanted to put over?
3: Well, we both uh, live in Italy. Um... So uh, he's a, not just because of that, but he's he's a particularly um, strong influence on us. Uh, he was really a prophet. Um, uh, we have great, both of us have great admiration for his work. And as a cultural figure, um, how he lived, how he died, uh, where he figured in Italian culture, uh, is something very interesting and something that we can learn from uh, even today.
2: So the film tells the story about his last couple of days. Why did you decide, if you're going to play Pasolini, if you're going to make a movie about Pasolini, why did you concentrate exclusively on 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 that small window?
3: Um, you've got to, you know, you've got to figure out how to, f- you know, you've got to make a structure and. Um, there's many ways you could uh, approach the his life his work and uh, this was just sort of the most practical way for us Um, we started interviewing family and friends and um, we thought the best thing to do would be to make a very precise structure and we uh, created a scenario that was really built from the details of those interviews so we had sort of a factual or a documentary approach to making the structure and then we uh, fleshed it out from there and just really tried to inhabit um that scenario and 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 also be able to present some of his material and try to uh, at least to our minds approximate where we imagined uh, he had arrived at a life that was cut short where he was at
2: and cut short in a particularly brutal way because he's killed by a gang i'm not sure if it's a burglary or if it's that they object to his homosexuality but it is particularly brutal in italy is this still discussed you know who killed pasolini sometimes seems almost to be like who killed kennedy
3: it's exactly that um It is still discussed, and um, we really made a conscious choice to make sure that that wasn't what the movie is about. Because we do uh, deal with his last days, that's certainly part of it, and it's also, uh, of course, an ending. Um, uh, We didn't want to shy away from it, but uh, one of the challenges was to tell that uh, part of the story without taking a clear... um, you know, expressing an opinion about actually what happened to make the event without um, uh, kind of uh, showing our hand. Yeah.
2: And while he's an iconic figure in Italy, my guess is he's not really an iconic figure in a lot of the rest of the world. You've already referred to him as a prophet. Could you just convince maybe a sceptical audience just explain what it is about this man that, that made you think he's a prophet and and is so extraordinary?
3: You know, my way of convincing is to try to make the movie and then people take (laughs) it from there. But I get it. Um, Well, why is he a prophet for me? Just the things that he was talking about, a certain kind of evolution of uh, Italian culture and uh, and even Western culture, uh, he was very prescient. Uh, He really saw uh, certain changes that were going to happen and uh, he spoke to those things, and he was a very articulate um, guy, and he he always sort of defended and was interested in what was human, what was vital. So he railed against certain kind of education systems, certain kind of uh, uh, materialism, uh, uh, certain uh, kind of flattening out a certain kind of homogenization. He felt like people were losing their sense of self, their uh, their identity, their specificness, their humanness. Everybody wanted the same thing. And I think as I'm going into this litany of <laughs> his his thoughts, I think this all sounds very familiar.
2: So what was the fight that he was fighting?
3: Uh, to, to try to... Um celebrate and find what's human. I mean, sometimes he he was known very much for uh, uh, loving to hang out with very simple people. But here he was a very erudite intellectual, uh, much accomplished in many fields, um, a very cultured guy. But uh, the people that he preferred, he said jokingly or not so jokingly in one interview, he preferred people uh, with less than a fourth grade education. Um, because he felt like they were more connected to their um, humanness, uh, what was vital. They were emotional. They weren't dead. They weren't in a lockstep um, that was dictated from uh, someone else. He made a very beautiful documentary in the 60s uh, interviewing people about sex, and one of my impressions from watching that was how how people take their attitudes and their... Um, their uh, their attitudes and their tastes and their desires from someone else. They don't really take it from themselves.
0: Is it true
2: you didn't really know that much about Pasolini until Martin Scorsese recommended The Passion of Matthew prior to doing The Last Temptation of Christ?
3: That's half true. I, I knew of him, um, but only I knew some films. But I didn't know... Uh, Uh, about his critical writings. I didn't know his poetry until uh, my Italian wife turned me on to those. I didn't know... I knew his novels existed, but I had not read them. But, of course, all these things, I, uh, through time, I did uh, become acquainted with. Mm. And and the fact that uh, Martin Scorsese told me to look at uh, Passion According to Matthew was very important.
2: Because your movie, the Pasolini movie, starts with him... Editing one of his more controversial movies with some pretty grim scenes from Salo, but then it's worth remembering that the Passion, according to Matthew, is there, which is on the Vatican-approved list—one of their fifty top movies of all time. I mean, they don't—they don't obviously call it that, but effectively they're saying, "Go watch
3: this movie." And it's true. It's true. Well, it—it's—it's um, uh, it's a powerful movie, and uh, sort of like Last Temptation. Uh, you know, it always amazes me that uh, the religious right took offence to that movie when it's a movie that really does address um, the spiritual matters.
2: And I think you, you've made this uh, this connection that in the same way that that was a Jesus and not the Jesus, I think you believe that this new movie is certainly a Pasolini, not the Pasolini.
3: Certainly, certainly. It's, it's our Pasolini. It's what um, it was... Uh, Our portrait from uh, our experience of him and our our love for him and our admiration for him
2: and if someone comes out of your movie and wants to go and see something and go and start afresh and thinks maybe I should go and look at this work where should they go what what would you recommend
3: he's shot some beautiful movies some not so beautiful maybe his poetry is very beautiful get any collection of his poetry Read uh, his poem about his mother. Uh, Also, his critical writing. Uh, The thing that I came to uh, at the very last was his critical writing, particularly his late critical writing, uh, the Corsair writings and the Lutheran letters. this this is sort of included in some of the thoughts. He, he expresses some of the thoughts that he uh, writes about in those letters in the last interview in the movie. So if you see the movie and you really respond to that interview, that's where to go. I
2: just have a few questions from uh, listeners just before you go. Willem, the last time you were on the show was for Antichrist. So here's a question from uh, Brian Shano, uh, who says, Do you agree with uh, Mark? He's our uh, movie critic. Uh, Do you agree with Mark's assertion that just because you were in Antichrist doesn't mean you understood it?
3: Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, You know, what's to understand? I mean, uh, a movie is a complex thing. People are going to have different understandings. They're going to have different reactions to it. Thank God. There's no... uh, uh, one uh, interpretation
2: Jamie Britton's question next can you ask Willem how he managed to give one of the greatest performances I've ever seen in Paul Schrader's Affliction despite being in it for about 10 minutes barely moving and acting opposite Nick Nolte
3: hmm. that's very kind um, look I like that material uh, that was a very beautiful uh, story, very beautiful novel by Russell Banks um, so I felt somehow connected it uh, to it, not so much from my personal life, but it spoke to me. Um, thank you. <laughs> I had worked with Paul Schrader before. He had a very uh, simple, direct approach to it, and I think it suited the movie.
2: Jeff Hannon's question: Where can I get? Where can I get your jacket from Grand Budapest
0: Hotel?
3: <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a tough one. <laughs> that's a one of a kind, and I'm sure it's under lock and key somewhere. <laughs>
2: David Proctor's question, finally, how bonkers was the set of Heaven's Gate?
3: Ah, uh, it didn't start out bonkers. Uh, you know, uh, it, was, it was interesting. And, uh, who knows what came first, the pressure from the studio, the panic from the studio, or uh, Michael Cimino's perfectionism. Um, but the two was sort of a bad mix when, uh, you know, after the first couple of days, we were a week behind that made the studio very nervous and we know the rest of the story but um... there was a lot of tension uh, there were a lot of uh, good intentions to make a very um, uncompromising beautiful movie Um but people lost their nerve halfway through and uh, some crazy stuff happened
2: Willem, we appreciate your time today, thank you very much indeed, what's what's next for you after Pasolini what are you working on next?
3: I worked with Hector Babenco uh, in uh, Brazil in a movie called My Hindu Friend and I just finished uh, a long time in China with Zhang Yimou on a a big movie called uh, The Great Wall so both of those should be coming out, uh, not soon, but uh, in the next year.
2: Look forward to that. Willem Defoe, we appreciate your time.
3: Appreciate sure. Thank yeah, you. OK, Bye-bye. be well.
2: Uh, William Defoe speaking to me a couple of days ago uh, on Pasolini, which comes out next Friday. So Mark hasn't seen it. So far. I don't think you've seen it yet. Have you? No,
3: no,
1: I've seen Solo and Gospel According to Matthew. <laughs> I thought it was very funny when you said this Solo, which is some difficult, challenging material. Yeah, you're not kidding. <laughs> but but a very engaging guest, and I like. The... Oh, he's lovely. He's absolutely lovely, and uh, you know, uh, superbly took on the chin. The thing about just because you're in the film, you don't understand. Of course, actually, we ha- we did ask him that in the studio himself because he and I had a bit of a Barney about it. Um, but he, no, he's a, a bri- yeah, brilliantly. And even when asked about heaven. Heaven's Gate didn't actually kind of run away. No, no, no. He's uh, he's he's fearless, and he's he's earned the right to you know to have yeah. He's a very very good interview and very very fine actor. Five and a half minutes away from three o'clock, Mark Gatiss will be
2: with us in about uh, twenty minutes time. Let's uh, get something new. What's uh, what's happening with you? Well,
1: let's leap in with me and Earl and the Dying Girl, which I know we've got quite a lot of correspondence about. Um, it's uh, the prospect of having a sort of Sundance indie-inflected take on the themes of uh, In Now Is Good or Fault in Our Stars does sound terribly kind of toe-curling, and I was worried about this in advance, particularly because I knew that also the film was littered with these sort of movie pastiches all the way through. Actually, I have to say, right at the beginning, I th- found the movie very moving, very affecting. I liked it very much. I know some people have uh, got the hump with it, but I, I'm, I'm not in that camp at all. It won me over, and I went in not expecting to like it. I went in expecting it to be irksomely quirky and not expecting to be won over by it but I was so the story is Thomas Mann is this dorky geek Greg this is based on the um, young adult uh, bestseller by Jesse Andrews who incidentally adapted his own screenplay and I think has done rather a good job of it so uh, Greg's mum tells him that their neighbour and friend uh, Rachel has been diagnosed with leukaemia and he should go and spend some time with her he doesn't want to do that at all he says no I'm you know he's what he's tried to do is to spend his whole life keeping out of any uh, major school interaction keeping his head down keeping Himself safe, but his mother tells him that he has to. His best friend Earl, the titular Earl, is somebody who he doesn't describe as a friend, he describes as a co-worker because, according to Earl, he's just afraid of the word friendship. Together, they make these quirky movie pastiches like Senior Citizen Kane and Pooping Tom and A Sockwork Orange, little clips from which we see throughout the film. Anyway, he decides that he will indeed go and see Rachel, and after a frosty start, things start to improve. his a clip.
4: So you and Greg are co-workers? Nah, we friends. He just hate calling people his friend. Dude's got issues. Yeah, he does. What's going on? Man, I don't even know. It might be his folks. I mean, dude's mom always tell him how handsome he is, which he ain't. So now he think he can't trust anybody close to him. Dude's weird ass dad don't socialize with anybody except the cat. So That's a role model, ain't got no friends. Bottom line, dude's terrified of calling somebody his friend and they saying, hey, bro, I'm not your friend. Then he have to kill himself.
0: But how are you co-workers?
4: We um, we make films. Movies? Yeah. We've been making them for a few years now. We have like 42 in total.
0: Greg, you never told
4: me. Well, we never told anybody about them. They suck. I mean, they're terrible. I'm pretty sure they don't suck. Well, you can see for yourself if you want.
1: That's RJ sutter well, who I actually think is the most interesting character in the film. Um, what I liked about it was that it's you know, it's dealing with material which to some extent is familiar in the area of YA fiction, of uh, young adult fiction. But what it does is it manages to avoid uh, mawkishness and uh, sentimentality, although I, I don't have such a problem with sentimentality, but without, recor- without recourse to emotional detachment. It's not something that just feels terribly arch. All the way through the film, you have these very cine-literate, very knowing Movie pastiches, and yet, and they do filter all the way through the main feature in a kind of uh, Michel Gondry-esque fashion. But at no point do you get that sense of oh, this is just somebody just playing with this form and showing off and just referring to other movies. Actually, the central uh, uh, thread is that what they need to do is to make an original movie for Rachel. They need to make something to cheer her up. They need to make something to boost her spirits. And the, the narrative is constantly interrupted by Greg providing. This very sort of deadpan, dry, wry voiceover that tells you, you know, this isn't a love story. This isn't this isn't, uh, you know, one of those stories that you know about in in which this happens. And he keeps saying, well, if this were, then this would happen. But it isn't. So this happens instead. And all the time it manages to balance that kind of wry humour, the nods to Werner Herzog, which, of course, you know, tickled me absolutely enormously with Dealing with its subject matter seriously, but without mawkishness, and but not doing it in a way that made you feel that it was sort of cold or frosty or emotionally hostile. I mean, the the, the best description of it is, and I don't mean this as a, as a criticism, it it was genuinely charming, and I, being charmed by a movie is a special thing you kind of, you know, you're sitting there and you suddenly realise that the movie has started to work its spell on you. And I know for a fact that there were people in the same screening that I was in who, upon whom the spell did not work at all, that all they saw was a kind of grating, uh, indie-inflected, self-consciously knowing uh, take on Fault in Our Stars and those sort of themes, because of the novels are actually uh, contemporary. But I thought it was much more than that. I was moved, I was charmed, I laughed, and... I thought it was. I thought it was actually pretty damn good.
2: I'm in Five Live Central, and uh, Mark's in Lewick. And before the news, uh, Mark was talking about uh, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Um, I like to, to, to no one's surprise more than my own. Sean Atkinson in Northampton. I sought out the film whilst on holiday in New York back in June. Ended up seeing it twice in a day. Hey. Which is uh, which is going something yeah, there's yeah. there's humor cinematography inventiveness and a whole lot of heart it never feels overwrought it drips in in sincerity and real by this I mean the kind of language teenagers would actually say in real dialogue Thomas Mann is wonderfully vulnerable Olivia Cook will be one of Britain's finest actresses and RJ is it Kyler? Sile. well I think it's silent but I
1: than me and pronunciations I mean
2: yeah, you're asking the wrong person brilliant in his first ever film uh, heartily recommended Um Umral Makateer, poignant, touching, funny, with endearingly understated performances and a nifty soundtrack from Brian Eno. Most interesting for Wittertane Greg and Earl are amateur filmmakers, though I felt that the references to European cinema generally and the work of Werner Herzog and Klaus Kinski Kinski in particular (laughs) may have been missed.
1: They have got the clip of Kinski uh, yelling at Herzog in Burden of Dreams, which, (laughs) even in the context of this movie, is really... It's quite extraordinary. And I, I like the fact that that keeps, that keeps turning up. The Herzog thing keeps turning up yeah. all the way through it. Anyway, Umrah says, it's slightly shameful and embarrassing when you're the only one to chortle
2: at <laughs> a cinephile joke. <laughs> Nevertheless, much of Greg's oeuvre listed in the end credits would yeah, be a shoe in for the Well Done You shortlist, except yeah. Sockwork Orange. Sockwork Orange, yeah. we do not Brew Velvet. Speaking of puns, by the We're way. Brew John Quigley uh, was taking part in our uh, movies for Food Lovers. And I had suggested Bread Poet Society and Educating Rivita, which I very just thought good. worth uh, mentioning. Just one more and me and Earl and the Dying Girl. My wife and I went to see uh, this movie the other day after getting some free tickets. We weren't particularly looking forward to it, expecting a Fault in Our Stars rip-off. However, we would never turn down free tickets and we were very glad we went. It was very good indeed. We both felt that it portrayed a very difficult subject very well and it was the right mix of laugh and cry. It seemed that everyone leaving had a tear in their eye but the general consensus was that it was Good saying this, it could be down to our low expectations that we enjoyed it so much, but either way, it defo has our thumbs up. So,
1: I mean, Patrick I, in Winchester. I just say that my, my response to that is low expectations are one thing. I went in feeling, I think, actively expecting to dislike it and sort of you know that kind of oh, right, come on, win me over, which made it all the more impressive when it did. I don't think I liked it because I wasn't expecting it to be any good. I think. I liked it, despite the fact that I had gone in, you know, just because right from the title and everything you knew about it, about its, you know, Sundance reputation, just, you know, set my it was, got my hackles up. And then I, and then it won, it really did. It charmed me, and I was I, I was won over by it, and I thought it was I thought it was really good. Um, on last week's program, we were discussing the possibility of you and I adopting a child. Um, <laughs> Can I just say I think you were talking about well, it, and just... I was just quietly. You're making noises in the background. Mm, supportive noises.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, and this would be a child I'm that would supportive. just sort of sit in the corner of the studio and we'd bring out for photogenic <laughs> reasons every now and again. <laughs> uh, Nick Gale, dear adoptive Maran part, with reference to your request for children to adopt, I suggest you adopt my son. He's called Moses and he would be an ideal first child of the flagship film review programme. Um, he is, of course, a long-time listener. He's healthy, bright and well-adjusted. Critically, he will be 18 on the 18th of September. Hence, he'll only be your responsibility for a short period, leaving you little time to do any damage. And importantly, he won't cost you much by way of food, clothes, fuel costs, that kind of thing. Indeed, I'm not in the habit of selling my children in exchange. All, in exchange, all we ask is a wasp up to Mo for nearly, depending on when you read this, making it to 18. Anyway, Nick, fellow child of the 60s, thank there you very is. much. Well, that's one That's one <laughs> suggestion. Uh, Corentin Smith. Uh, just gone midnight today. I finally got my 13-day-old son to sleep. We'd just finished watching Dark City from 1998 with Sutherland as my little wife slept. 3 a.m. soon arrived... And so too did his attempts at bringing down the house with his screaming. Once more fed and once more asleep, it was 5am and I popped on the podcast to help chill out a little. I pressed play just at the moment when you offered your services in adopting someone live on air. Perhaps it was the lack of sleep or the headache or the thought that it would be like this for the next few years. But I was tempted to take you up on your offer and have our son raised by the good doctors. If you weren't being serious in your offer, that's fine. I'll just invest in a heavy duty safe to hide in like what that lady does in Looper, unless you have any other film-related coping with being first-time parent techniques. Uh, anyway, Karen thank you very much indeed for that. Well, you know, it's, we've, we've, I've been encouraged, really, by the number of people who are offering...
1: They're get deluded by the
2: number of people uh, they are offering. and what we'll do is there are certain BBC rules obviously regarding this because I think they see it as a competition <laughs> and and any kind of competition has to go through has to jump through various hoops
1: can I just say if you can hear if you can hear sort of chortling in the back end mark gates is here now in the studio in chat really? so yes he is Have so we I made know, him
2: chortle already
1: well, well no I think that was you but oh, um but I'm just just so you know that that's what, that's what that noise is in the back end so when we're doing the next film review which we'll do before uh, we speak to mark that's he's going to have to I sit here say,
0: all right mark Hello, that was me, uh, chortling.
1: Yes, uh, Warburtons of the worlds. How about that? I've just thought that. Very good,
2: very good, very good. <laughs> That's very good. I like I like a guest who joins in, <laughs> don't you? Uh, okay, so we'll talk to Mark very shortly because uh, cause he's busy and active and a star of uh, of Shetland uh, and most of the world. Shetland, the place, as opposed to Shetland, the TV series. Yeah. Of course. So, uh, what else? Are you, are you going to review something before we speak to Mark?
1: Well i mean you know, since Mark is here, why don't we just why don't we just leap straight in? I could review something I haven't seen. Yeah, go ahead. What did you think of American Ultra, Mark? Amazing. Did you? You loved it. Yeah. Which bit did you like the best? The, I like the bit at the end. Yeah, I like that too. <laughs> but we right. can't talk about the bit at the end. No, we can't. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I, it's up to up to you, Simon. You're in the driver's chair. We can either talk to Mark now, or I can do American Ultra. Well, I think want? I think we should do American Ultra, okay.
2: and then and then we should relish and enjoy every moment with uh, with Mark Gates.
1: Okay, so American Ultra, J- Jesse Eisenberg, Kristen Stewart. If you've seen the trailers, you will know pretty much all of the movie because it's another case of the the trailers take the excerpts from the whole of the film including very very near the end of the film which always infuriates me so the story is he's a complete stoner uh, working in a convenience store at night she is his long suffering girlfriend you can't quite understand what it is that she sees in him but they do appear to have a workable relationship Uh, in the middle of the night he discovers somebody tampering with his car and apparently out of nowhere suddenly develops super spy lethal trained to kill deadly skills with which he dispatches the villains are completely astonished as to what has happened he rings his girlfriend and says i don't know what's going on but we realize that we're in a mashup of the born identity and pineapple express here's a clip hey
2: babes. what's up
1: hey, i just
4: killed two people two um two gentlemen <laughs> that's awesome why no these two guys were trying to like break into my car at work and they had guns and knives and, and they just attacked me Baby got mugged. And then I took like a spoon
1: and I just like, mmm, I like shoved it through this guy. Did you call the police? No, I didn't call the police because I'm the kill guy. Go- I'm the murderer, okay. I also have like, I have like a lot of weed and like mushrooms in my car, and I just killed two
4: dudes in a parking lot, okay. And Phoebe, if you don't come here right now, I am just gonna start like in my pants. I swear to God, Phoebe, I'm just gonna start like. How did this happen?
1: I shot those guys in the head, and that guy I like, I spooned him in the neck, and just like ended.
4: Why are people trying to stab
1: you? I don't know. Shh, I don't know, but I am. Um, I'm, like, freaking out all over the place, babe. I have, like, a lot of anxiety about this. Get your hands in the air. That's a lot of bleeping for a short clip. It is, yeah. So... The funny thing is that from that clip and from the trailer and the setup, it kind of sounds like it's going to be a fair amount of fun. It's, you know, it's a stoner comedy, which is he suddenly discovers that actually he's got uh, super spy skills and then the the comedy is that he's still behaving like this completely paranoid loser who doesn't have any life skills whatsoever and is just hiding away in this convenience store and yet somehow underneath all that he has this whole born Identity thing going on. And that sounds promising. So the opposite to what happened with me and Earl and the Dying Girl uh, happened with this. I went in thinking, okay, I want to be entertained. I thought the the trailer was fun and I like both those actors and, uh, you know, they've worked well on screen together before. And actually, very quickly, the whole thing runs out of steam. And it's a shame, because the scripted by Max Landis, who, and at times you get the sense that it's channeling some of the anarchic energy of Into the Night, you know, which John Landis directed, didn't write, but which he directed, and which I've always loved. I think it's one of John Landis' best films. And I like Max Landis' previous uh, screen work. I like Chronicle. I like his writing. Um, when this opened in America and didn't do very well, the, he took to Twitter, and there was a sort of long... Uh, discussion in which he was he was basically complaining that the problem with the film was that there was no space in the american market anymore for original material by that incidentally he didn't mean i've written a really original script what he meant was original as opposed to franchise as opposed to series as opposed to something which is a product which people already are aware of through uh through, through books or, or through comic strips and the shame of it is that I wish that American Ultra was a better movie because I wish that it was possible to have that discussion about something that was... The honest truth of it is, the reason American Ultra hasn't done... As well as it should do, is that it's not as good as it ought to be. For it, there, it looks like 17 different films thrown together into a bag by the director of Project X and left to duke it out and you know see which one wins. There are entire sections of it in which it appears to forget that it basically is a character-driven comedy, and the director seems to become so seduced by the action sequences, by the fight sequences, which are very scrunchy and very. I mean, if you're somebody who's you know, if, if you like horror movies and you like uh, you know, scrunchy screen violence. You're not going to be shortchanged in this. But what you do get shortchanged in is that during those sequences, it seems to forget. All the other things that actually made the story interesting, which is the central relationship between the two characters. There is one, there is a whole section in it about 15, 17 minutes long in which it seems to forget that it is anything other than an action movie. As I said before, it doesn't help that every single one of the kind of the zinger gags, including the visual zingers, are all included in the trade so, so during some of the sea sequences, you are actually waiting for the best gag of the movie to happen. And it is long and baggy. And it definitely needs to be uh, taken down. It looks like it's, you know, it's a couple of edits away from being fully uh, f- fully reeled in. So the problems with it are not that it's. Um... It, it, it's not that there is no market anymore in America for original screenplays. In fact, time and time again, you see movies that are original that do succeed. The problem is that it actually isn't as good as it ought to be. Even at 96 minutes, it feels baggy. It's, you know, Roger Corman famously said, no, very few movies wouldn't benefit from losing a third of their running time, and this is a very good example of one that wouldn't. And if you went through it with a, you know, with, with a strimmer, it would certainly improve things. The performances are kind of cute and kind of funny, and every now and then... There are individual lines, individual moments that you think, if only those were the focus of the film rather than being the focus of the trailer, it would all come together. As it is, it does genuinely look like as I said, 17 different films in a body bag fighting for supremacy and the film can't quite decide whether well, it's very, very difficult to get uh, action comedy or, you know, border crossing, genre crossing comedy right. It's really, really hard to do. One of the extraordinary things about American Werewolf is that it manages to do it. One of the extraordinary things about Evil Dead is that it manages to do it. This doesn't. This just has long sections when you think. It's just an action movie, and that's not what I came to see.
2: Roland Evers on an email. Uh, He's in Holland. I saw American Ultra last week when it was released here in the Netherlands. Overall, I thought it was an enjoyable but, in the end, quite forgettable movie. Despite being a rehash of familiar ideas, it desperately tries to be unique and different. When the movie works, it's fun. When it doesn't, it's just stupid. (laughs) Luckily, Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart do a very solid job, and it's because of their chemistry that the film didn't lose me during its most incoherent and over the top moments.
1: Yeah, well, I would I would agree with that. Email,
2: uh, Roland Evans. Thank you very much indeed. It's Mayo at BBC.co.uk. Twenty uh, minutes past three o'clock, and as we've already established, uh, our very special guest in this hour
0: uh, is Mark Gates. What are you doing there, Mark? Um, I'm just I'm here just to see American Ultra, which is on a, <laughs> the pictures. Uh, I'm not going to go now. I'm just going to watch the the trailer. Maybe that's the right length for it.
1: That, honestly, it is becoming increasingly the case, Mark, <laughs> yeah. that you see trailers and you I, think, I that's the movie. They give away the twist sometimes. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. No, but not, but yeah. not... I mean, there are... And also the amount of trailers which now feature the very final shot. But if yeah. you see the trailer, for example, for Vacation, the remake of Vacation, the trailer's... You know, it's a pretty sharp bit of comedy yeah. at two minutes long. <laughs> but when you see <laughs> yeah. that over the space of an hour and 40 minutes, it's yeah, it's it, it, it's it not well-timed. Yeah, so Mark is here as a special guest of the Shetland Screenplay Film Festival this evening... We are showing *Adventure in Space and Time*, which is a wonderful piece that he did about uh, the creation of *Doctor Who*. And then we're going to have a, a, a Q&A. Have you seen *Adventure in Space and Time* on a big screen before? Yes, yes. With, a, with an audience. No yes, right. it's a. It's a, to Tell us about the creation of it because it's such a great piece of work. For those who don't know, it's about William Hartnell being cast. And to tell us about it. Uh, well, it was uh, it was commissioned for the
0: 50th anniversary of *Doctor Who* a couple of years ago. I mean, it was uh, really a. Uh, a pet project of mine for years i've genuinely i first pitched it uh about 10 12 years ago and uh, you know i hadn't worked on it every day since but it really has been going on that long and uh so to finally get it off the ground was was amazing and the strange thing is it's not i mean uh, john persby was my doctor but the, the the beginnings of doctor who were always a kind of you know uh like a creation myth to me <laughs> I, I i grew up with that story about about those amazing people who just put it together with no money and lots of amazing ideas, and it its i, I, I found the whole the whole process was was fantastic, and and David Bradley is amazingly yeah. touching as as Hartnell.
1: And and a, a, a complete dead ringer for him, yeah, which is yeah. extraordinary yeah, because it's... actually you know it, it, it not, it, it, when you look at him you don't immediately think that is well, William Hartnell. Yeah. But extra- you said that thing about uh, Pertwee was your first because I'm 52 and you are. Uh, 19. 19. So my first Doctor Who was Troughton, yeah, Troughton who, yeah. I always remember, who turns up at, uh, at the end of this story. And yet the, there is something so iconic about Hartnell's version, of, because when they first invented uh, Doctor Who, the first thing they said is, well, he has to be about 700 years old. Yeah. And Hartnell was the only one of them who he actually looked, looked like he was about 700 <laughs> years old. he
0: was only old. 55. But, but, but as you know, everyone was older then. I mean, he... he, he uh, People looked so much... I've got pictures of my, my grandparents on, on the beach. Uh, my granddad in a three-piece suit with his trousers turned up and his hat on. And he was probably about 45. He's probably about 48, which is what I am. And, and he looks about 70 then. You know, everybody... They had hard, very hard lives, I think. And uh, Hartnell was... Um, An an extraordinary man, really, uh, and not an obvious choice, but the the part completely changed his life. So it was a a celebration, really, and in so many ways, but also a kind of, well, really a love letter to the the show for me.
1: With your your work on Doctor Who and and Sherlock, and you achieved extraordinary success, are you still as much of a fan as you always used to be? Because you once said that you were the sort of, you know, the uber fan. Are you still a fan? Yeah, of course I am. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it does... To be honest, I mean... uh, Doctor Who and,
0: and Sherlock Holmes were the two things I loved most when I was when I was a kid, and and still I still are. I mean, what happens is the experience of of working on on them is is sort of still divorced from the original feeling. It's kind of tied up with it, but Doctor Who is is now is not an exercise in nostalgia. It's an ongoing, yeah. leaving breathing brand new show with a new audience. Sherlock is a new show, but so I I can still sort of compartmentalize. I don't feel like. Um, it, it, the fact that it's very hard work and takes an awful lot of effort and time, it doesn't, it doesn't sort of um, impinge
1: on those memories. I can kind of mesh them all together. Thank, thank God. How do you find time to get everything done? Because you do it, you've got all that going on. You've been on stage. You've got a break from the stage yeah. show at the moment. Yes. Tell us about the stage show.
0: Uh, it's called Three Days in the Country. It's a new adaptation of the Tegenyev play uh, A Month in the Country uh, by Patrick, Patrick Marber, Marber. Uh, and it's going very well but we're at the National so we're in rep so I'm able to come to Shetland uh, and uh, and then going uh, to Sweden on holiday
1: very good but it. you're not going directly from Shetland you're going back to yeah, I don't know why. back to Heathrow first which makes no sense whatsoever we've <laughs> got to get our, everything ready for
0: the Aber Museum which and, is, in fact, the principal reason for going to Sweden.
1: <laughs> and uh, film stuff. Uh, it, it, I know there's stuff in the pipeline. Some yeah. stuff that you can't talk about, yeah. but 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 the film you will be returning to the world of film very soon.
0: Hope so. Yes, actually, I've done. Uh, I did uh, quite a few um, cameos. Last year, I mean, that's I say that as if as if my name's be put in a special box. <laughs> I just have small parts of <laughs> i mean Victor Frankenstein, which amazingly is my first horror movie. Wow! Which Paul Wow well, you know, after Paul all this Morgan, time, yeah, has, has directed uh, with uh, Daniel Radcliffe and James McAvoy. Um, i mean uh, a new LaCarrie film called Our Kind of Traitor, which, is, which I just saw a couple of months ago, which is great, I think, and and dad's army which is out next year oh wow yeah. of course yeah
1: and uh, it, we should just ask you because earlier on this week as you know where uh, wes craven died anybody who's interested in in horror uh, I think has a huge amount of respect for Wes Craven. Certainly one of the most articulate champions of uh, of horror cinema. A ter- always yeah. a terrific interview. And I think a brilliant filmmaker. Kim Newman tweeted, you know, uh, Wes Craven reinvented horror at least four times. Most yeah. people struggle yeah. to do it even once. Yes, absolutely. What what, what do you th- what was your thoughts about about his work
0: and his life? I, well, I always got the impression. I never met him actually. Strangely enough, when I was doing my uh, history of horror, mm. we, we chose to stop at Halloween just because we sort of had to stop somewhere. But I remember him being in the mix of potential interviewees and it it never quite happened but um, I wish I had met him because he always seemed very gentle but also uh, in something which is rare he he was very happy to be accepted for doing something that people loved and I I, I suppose he he probably wanted to make some sort of civil war epic at some point in his life but he'd become a horror director but he was actually seemed very at peace with that yeah yeah And, and as you say I mean to sort of create the, the, the slasher genre and then completely reinvent it uh, you know for another generation with, with Scream um, and then of course the Last House on the Left etc those earlier ones um, I think he was a uh, an under, well, as ever, a very underrated filmmaker.
1: I think I mean I, th- I think he was he extraordinary in what he managed to do. As you say, always completely at peace. That. And, oh, and the thing that I always loved about him is he always described horror in very positive terms. He mm. always said it was a celebration. He said famously, horror films don't create fear; they release fear. Yeah. And he absolutely yeah. saw the experience completely. of watching yeah. horror as being yeah. boot camp for the soul. You know, you work yeah. out all your fears yeah. in, in a safe environment. Why do we?
0: Why do we uh, keep having to have this argument? I mean, it's
1: basically what the Greeks did. Yes. That's, that's how
0: it started. The, the point of it is catharsis. Can I ask we
2: you? Old... Can I ask you about your outfit in Frankenstein, please? My, my outfit. Your outfit, because <laughs> I still think one of the scariest things I've seen is you in Wolf Hall, and that hat that you wore <laughs> as you emerged again from some.
0: It's called a coif that is Is it? Thing. Yeah, and um, how do you spell uh, that? C O I. Like quiff? Like quiff? It must <laughs> no, be. A... I'll I'll come back to it. Is that where the quiff came from you know that it's one of those those droopy um, sort of Terry Gilliam things that you put over your face and then the hat on top that's all it was and and yet uh, five people I thought were friends including my brother Asked me if I was wearing a false nose. Uh, because well, I didn't have it, uh... a problem with your nose. It was you look. You were fantastic. <laughs> no, but it, it's it's sort of a, it accentuates uh, certain features um, a lot. <laughs> so in uh, in in Victor Frankenstein, I wear um oh, well I I, I I a rather beautiful Victorian lab coat, etc. Et Lovely. And what is it that you can't tell us about? Oh, no, I can't, tell, can't you. tell you about Well, vaguely, you know.
2: Vaguely,
1: mark, well, Mark, well, I shouldn't. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 that's fine. Well, we, I don't know anything about it. So, I could, is it a
2: movie that you can't tell us about?
1: Well, wait and see. <laughs> that's exciting, isn't it? Well, listen, t- t- since you can't tell us about that, just spend a few don't, minutes not, explaining. Don't tell me about something else. Explaining <laughs> to Simon, because he won't come to Shetland. You've only, I know you only just arrived here yesterday, but your impression of Shetland. Will his, he not come Shetland,
2: Why won't you come, Simon? Uh, it's the fact I have other shows to do, which uh, don't necessarily benefit from being at a film festival in Shetland.
0: Well. Well, we. Uh,
2: what do you mean, we, well? It <laughs> <laughs> used to be the fact that on Thursday night and on Friday night, I do my radio.
0: He means make like the well. effort, mate. You could have all a holiday. Yeah. Come on. Take well, it in lieu. Well, we have That's to leave this interview TV there. Just <laughs> uh, well, we arrived yesterday, um, and uh, it's fantastic to. Uh, rather surprising, you have to get a tiny propeller plane from Edinburgh. And it was so much like the beginning of The Wicker Man, which, of yes. course, is my entire expectation of this journey. <laughs> I, I thought, well, here we go. Um, and uh, so far, it's uh, it's been lovely. Are you in the room next to Brit Eklund? She's banging on the wall. That's no, it. no, actually, no. It's it's, it's a, the double. It's, a, it's the double. It's yeah. The double. It's a stripper from Glasgow. <laughs> uh,
2: just like normal.
3: Uh,
2: Chrissy Watford. Does Mark have any plans to make a film or TV drama about Lucifer Box, or to write any Lucifer Box stories, any new
0: ones? Um, no plans to do any new ones. Well, I, I have actually twice uh, failed to get it off the ground as a TV series. Uh, it hasn't quite worked. out. You, you have
2: to say if you're if you've failed because you are so hot. I mean, you are the man Associated with some of the biggest TV shows, it's possible to to be ha- having on television. And if you, why can't you get your own show away? Come on! I Bob. wish I
0: knew. Uh, to be honest, uh, that that's a, it's an abiding thing. I think a lot of people assume I kind of walk into New Broadcasting House and say, mm, "I quite like to do the Mayor of Castlebridge," and someone gives me a bag of money. I wish that were the case, because I'd love to do the Mayor of Castlebridge. Um, but uh, no, in fact. Uh, it, it, it happens more often than you think, and it's 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 just difficult. Difficult, really, to be honest. The difficult thing is trying to get a new thing off the ground. Um, obviously, uh, Doctor Who is a massively successful reinvention, which I'm very privilege to be part of and Sherlock of course is is an, another incarnation of the most film character in, in fiction but they are titanic, mm-hmm. I'm going to use the word, I hate it but they are titanic brands and Sherlock, but Sherlock Holmes particularly is known across the world but anything new like Lucifer Box um, people, they, they get nervous and, and when they get nervous when they have to spend money and that's that's how it always goes it's, it's, it's a tough thing but the problem is trying to convince people that there would never be those brands in the first place if it sort of hadn't taken a risk uh, a long time ago. Just one more.
2: Uh, Gary in Bister asks, can, says, can you ask Mark Gatiss, please, how, can you say, first of all, how much I enjoyed his contribution to the Hammer Horror Blu-ray releases, and does he have any plans or ambitions to write a future Hammer film? Now, that would be something. Well, mm, wouldn't
0: it? <laughs> oh."
2: I'm just reading out a question. Have I stumbled... I'm just,
0: no, I'm just chuckling. Have I stumbled upon a forbidden area? Maybe, maybe. No, I'd uh, I'd love to. I think... You know, I'm so... Um, I'm so thrilled at their success because anybody who knows anything about horror, or Hammer particularly, there have been so many false dawns over the years. They used. Yeah. There was a period where the Today programme, I think, just kept the old tape of saying, and back from the grave, yeah, that's right. uh, and someone would announce Hammer was being revived and it never happened, and the incredible thing is they've just done it, they're just making movies uh, very successfully um, incredibly, they're... Um, their distribution arm is called Exclusive Pictures, which is what it was back in the 40s, the 30s and 40s. Um, and, I, you know, more power to their elbow. I think they're doing a terrific job.
1: I remember I did a documentary back in the mid 90s uh, about the and it was called the the Rise and Fall and Rise of home. Uh, uh, and it ended up with and then they, they weren't <laughs> another, another 10 <laughs> yes. years. But yes, as you say, now they have successfully reinvented themselves, which well, is
2: terrific. Yeah.
1: Uh, Mark, we appreciate you
2: coming on the show. Thank you very much indeed, Thank and uh, have you. I a very see good see
1: you or hear you yes. as ever.
2: Have a very good night tonight. Where are you, where where is your movie being shown?
1: It's at Moriel, which is the uh, art centre in Lurwick, and uh, tickets so still go... available. Uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm sure, uh, but uh, it's it's what? yeah because it tends to be it tends to be a walk up is what we call it. It's because uh-huh. uh, it's you know obviously we're we're in Lurwick, so people who are coming coming from a, a limited area uh, but uh, yes, uh, it's, got, it's on tonight and then there's going to be a Q&A with Mark and then afterwards we're going to show, since you were going to change the title, you tell us what the title was you were going to change. Uh, the Tractate Middiff, which is the ghost story I directed for Christmas a couple of years ago. And you wanted to change the title because... No, I, no, I,
0: to... <laughs> I nearly did because it's unwieldy, but I, I couldn't I couldn't. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So both of them are happening tonight at Muriel and then tomorrow uh, Carol Morley, Lindsay Duncan and uh, loads more great guests here at Shetland. Mark uh, Jaws. So, uh,
2: Mark Gates, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Mark, Pat. what
1: are you reviewing in the
2: next 25 minutes, please?
1: We will do uh, Ricky and the Flash, definitely. We will do Transporter Refueled, unfortunately. And if we have time, we'll get to Cartel Land. It's 5 Live, 333. Click,
2: Tab, white. So many choices. It's difficult to know what to do. It's 20 to 4. We have 20 minutes of film conversation. And because Flora Shedden, her off Bake Off, wanted lots of, uh, got in touch with the show, she wanted lots of movie related uh, kind of food ideas. Uh, we have had a whole bunch of. Th- you ready for these just, I am I'll, really, I'll go through yes. them very quickly go ahead um, Macaroon with a view very good thank you, Nadim. Get Shortbread <laughs> uh, Glazed and Confused thank you uh, Graham uh, Flapjack Reacher I quite like that
1: there's a whole uh, bit of oh, product Flapjack Reacher sorry yes I, 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 the way you said it I didn't quite yes of course I'm just being slow that was Ben Keeler
2: um, Scone with the Wind
1: very good Much Ado about Muffin <laughs> that's actually quite good Ben yeah. Keeler um, Not as good as t- Tinker Tailor Soldier Soldier Sponge, which is still the best. The cook the wife is the cook the thief's wife, wife and her pavlova. Does that
2: work, That's Simon Shaw? Okay. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Flora, don't forget for that we now need two cakes. TV movie of the week. Thank you very much indeed for the participation. Here we go with this. Thomas Edwards says my pick is definitely going to be Train It's my favourite British film. I actually watched it on DVD just last week. Francis Begbie, one of cinema's greatest psychos. Always get this wrong, but I think Mark's going to pick. The kids are all right. Andrew Cousins. Uh, the Cabin in the Woods for me was a really clever horror movie with a surprising Lovecraftian twist. I think Mark's going to pick Train Spotting. Groundbreaking movie driven by an unforgettable soundtrack. David Ruey. I would go for Doubt, but Mark's going to choose The Angel's Share on account of his loach obsession, it being an excellent film and it playing at a reasonable hour. And Diana James, I'd personally choose E.T. Still an amazing watch after all these years, still reduces me to a puddle of tears. Not sure on Mark's pick. I'd like to say go for E.T., but I'm betting it's Boys in the Hood. What is our TV movie of the week?
1: Well it is Boys in the Hood and so uh, well chosen I thought nobody was going to get that at Mm -hmm. all and for for the simple reason that we were talking before um, about Straight Outta Compton which is currently number one in the UK box office and uh, we were wondering out loud whether over the course of two and a half hours the film should have managed to investigate some of the sort of socio-economic stuff rather more than just having the band having rows about uh, contracts and I mentioned that when uh, the film was originally mooted it was uh, earmarked to be directed by John Singleton. Boys in the Hood is the film that really sort of made John Singleton's career, and I think it still stands up. It was a real breakthrough work. It's very intelligent. Uh, It's got terrific performances, Ice Cube, Cuba Gooding Jr., and it's one of those films that... The, the further away from it you get the more important it looks it really was a groundbreaking movie and if you go see straight out of compton and you know many people are going to and there um, there is much to like about it particularly as i said the concert sequences and very solid performance performances by by all the, the the young cast but see boys in the hood because that is kind of what we ought to have been getting from a film like straight out of compton
2: okay 17 minutes to four what
1: else is new what's brand new what should we go and see well let's do I'm, I'm going to do the new Meryl Streep in a moment firstly let me just talk to you quickly about Cartel Land which is a uh, documentary which I think is a, a very very interesting uh, and disturbing film it started off it's directed by Matthew Heinemann started off as an investigation of uh, vigilantes uh, in, in the US patrolling the the, the, the US border and being uh, obsessed by the sort of by what they believe is the tide of people and drugs that are coming across and you are somehow overrunning their country. But actually, whilst he was doing that, he discovered uh, about the autodefensis uh, groups in uh, Mexico who were fighting against the drug cartels. They were sort of citizens' coalition, vigilante coalition. And he became more interested in that side of the story. And through uh, the eye of his camera, we meet uh, Dr. José Morales, who initially is seen uh, getting groundswell support for communities to take back their lives, their areas, their towns from the cartels who are so horrendous so vicious so violent and what the film does is it documents on the one hand it sets it up as this kind of parallel between vigilantes in america and these uh, community vigilante groups uh, in mexico And then what initially seems like a kind of a a juxtaposition between the warring forces then descends into something altogether more disturbing as the dreams and visions of the vigilantes start to fall apart and it becomes more and more apparent that in this world there is no black and white, that in fact it is possible to become the thing that you are fighting against. There is a, a, a quote in it in which he says we can't become the criminals that we're fighting against and yet during the course of the very harrowing uh, 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 documentary you do see exactly that start to happen. What makes the documentary work? I mean, uh, he, Matthew Hahnemann's been accused similarly, as was Joshua Oppenheimer when he made an uh, act of killing of perhaps making a documentary that lacks geopolitical context. I don't agree with that. In fact, it's made very clear right from the beginning that the drugs that are being made are being made for sale basically in the US, that the US is therefore funding the market and the atrocities which attend their production are dependent uh, on that market. But what Matthew Hahnemann's managed to do is to get up close and personal with the people fighting against the cartel, with the auto defences, with their battles against the cartel, and then to be able to witness firsthand the internal struggles, the unravelling, this extraordinary labyrinthine web, which actually seems to catch everybody in this ongoing cycle of oppression and violence it's a very harrowing piece of work it's executive produced one of its executive producers is Catherine Bigelow it comes with a very attention-grabbing score and is filmed in a sort of cinematic widescreen that makes it very much uh, a a cinematic feature I thought it was a very uh, arresting piece of work which both commands and demands your attention it's called Cartel Land. Now I wonder if
2: uh, Catherine Bigelow's name being on the poster very prominently will yes. actually draw people's eyes and go, "Oh, okay." I'll... I would
1: think so. I would think so. And actually, um, I mean, as you know, I'm I'm a big fan of Catherine Bigelow, and I, I wasn't a big fan of the, the criticisms that were levelled at the Zero Dark Thirty, which I always thought was a more subversive film than its critics gave it credit for. I think the the primary thing with Catherine Bigelow's name being there is that it tells you that this is cinematic, and it is. I mean, you know, this is so often the case with documentary, but this is this is an overtly dramatic documentary that is constructed in such a way as to maximise that kind of that cinematic it is a, it is a horrifying story and there are there are stories in it that are absolutely chilling and uh, but it, it, i think it, it tells the story well and it's it, it investigates its central kind of uh, labyrinthine web in a way which is very very personal in a way which which makes the story accessible to a wide audience uh, OK, so uh,
2: a lot will depend on the distribution,
1: but we'll get some uh, some listeners' thoughts on that next week. What else is new? Ricky and the Flash. So, Ricky and the Flash, Meryl Streep. Our favourite Whenever I see the name Meryl Streep all I can think of is Hello I'm Meryl Streep because as you remember at the time that she was on the programme that was how she had to introduce herself because she hadn't turned up in the studio. Anyway so Hello I'm Meryl Streep plays an absolute blinder uh, in this Jonathan Demi movie. It's the story of an ageing rocker attempting to reconnect with the daughter from whom she is estranged. Uh, Meryl plays uh, the lead singer Linda Nay Ricky of uh, Ricky and the Flash who is uh, the front person of a bar blues covers band playing in California. She gets a call from her now estranged ex-husband, Kevin Klein, who says, look, our daughter is in trouble and you need to come back and, uh, uh, you know, a- and help. But the daughter is, of course, by Mamie Gummer, who is actually uh, Meryl Streep's daughter in real life. So that adds something to the chemistry. So she decides to go back to Indianapolis where she becomes a chaotic force in the family that she left all those years ago. Here's a clip.
4: Hey, Juji. <laughs> nice of you to grace us with your presence. Couldn't make it for the wedding, but here you are, right in time for the divorce.
3: Okay. okay. Nobody wanted me at that wedding. Do you have a gig tonight, or do you always dress like a hooker from Night
4: Court?
0: <laughs> Going through a separation, it can be a, a crazy time.
4: I'm not crazy, Dad. Actually. I've never felt such clarity.
2: Well, there's actually a book on the subject called Crazy oh, Time. Shut
4: up, Pete! Honey, listen. This whole thing is not a big deal. I read I, I read something about it in big Parade
3: Magazine. Big deal. A lot of young women your age having starter marriage. This was not a
4: starter marriage. I was gonna marry Max, stay with him forever, have his kids, and actually raise them
0: to adulthood. Yeah, oh, okay. Julie, just take it easy.
4: Why are you defending her? She is your Max. What? No. She walked out on you, just like Max walked out on me.
1: So, you can see the scene is set for uh, family struggles and old wounds to be reopened. I like this film very much, and I like it for a number of reasons. The first one is, uh, the script is by Diablo Cody, who has sort of put to one side the kind of the arch... uh, uh, quips of juno and jennifer's body both of which i like very much this this is much more like a companion piece to young adult which was rather underrated actually including by me i think at the time i've seen it since and it's a it's a better movie than i think i gave it credit for at the time Um, so it's 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 a lovely script and it's a script which manages although it is Picking at these wounds, and it is a f- film of broken marriages. Whether it's you know Ricky walking out on Pete, or whether it's Julie's uh, marriage falling apart, or whether it's the fact that uh, Ricky's son is about to be married and he, she, he hasn't invited his own mother to the wedding, and yet it's not told with bitterness. I mean, John, Jonathan Demme is is one of those directors who clearly likes his characters and he is sympathetic to everyone whilst sort of picking away at the festering scabs of this family so that's one thing I like about it, I think the characters are really well drawn and that everyone's given a decent amount, of, everyone's given a decent hearing, nobody is, nobody is badly treated by the film the second thing is that it's one of those movies about uh, music in which it appears to be made by people that actually understand music of course the band, Ricky and the Flash are the musicians, the person who's her wingman, the guitarist is Rick Springfield Field. And it's not just that they're playing the songs. It's that Demi has created a film in which when you see Ricky and The Flash playing in a bar, they actually sound like they are playing in a bar. It is astonishing how few movies manage to get that right. Even when they have live music, they somehow manage to produce it to the point that it doesn't sound like it. So you genuinely believe in the band, which helps you then believe in the character. It, it, there's something really important about getting that stuff right. And it's astonishing how few people do. John the Demi, of course, has directed things like Stop Making Sense which remains a kind of rock documentary high watermark and the, you know he has a terrific ear for music and the third thing is that at the center of it all is Meryl Streep just tearing the place up I mean the, the, her, her character's life is chaotic and shambolic and her relationships are kind of all over the place and she's an she's an unreliable witness and she's a loose cannon and she's somebody who sort of brings chaos in her wake but it's not just an out of control performance it's a performance in which you can see the years that she's lived you can see the life that she's lived you can see the the unfulfilled dreams that she had and you you, consequently you feel terribly sympathetic towards her i mean i think great to see a character played with such relish who very much like the central character in in young adult is the sort of you know is the element of chaos in an otherwise polite situation. And of course, you know, read all the stuff in the paper about them. When, when she, when she plays with the band, it is it is her singing and it's very brave for her to do that. That's all part and parcel of the music being right. But the centre of it is a, I mean, I think it's one of, one of Meryl Streep's most riotously enjoy, enjoyable performances in, in, in quite a long time. She's j- just at the top of her game and, uh, you know, d- d- doesn't put a foot wrong in this. And I, I liked it very, very much. What's the name of the band? Uh, Ricky and the Flash. So she's Ricky, and they are the Flash.
2: Okay, and uh, where would you go? And were they good enough? Would you go and see them? If Ricky and the Flash are actually doing a doing a gig, who would they who? Would... I've seen Ricky, bands like
1: Ricky and the Flash. So they're they're basically they are cut co- there are covers, there are covers bar blues band whose repertoire is essentially sixties and seventies classic rock but they've realized that in order i mean actually one of the saddest scenes in the film is they realize that in order to carry on doing what they have to do they have to start incorporating songs by pink and lady gaga because there are now younger people in the bar who would like to listen to that stuff instead so meryl streep you know as ricky does this speech about yeah well we understand so now we'll, and then they take a running jump at some of those songs and they make them sound half decent which is you know which is great but it's it's if you've ever been to a truck stop bar or you've ever been to a uh you know one of those uh those bar cum cafes in america and you've seen about ba- that's exactly what they sound like i mean i actually once played with one i was uh, i was i was in a i was in a bar and there was exactly that kind of band playing and for some reason the bassist had to take a break and i said do you mind if i sit in and they said no because they were playing everything in a and a is a key anyone can play in and it was great for She's done a lot of singing recently. What was yes, that? But she, well, she, but she always, she always was a, you know, she, she always had a musical past on her. That was, if you look right back to, you know, Death Becomes Her, and everyone was being surprised, me, but she always had a. I and mean, when we were talking to her about Mamma Mia, she said, "Well, yeah, of course, that's where I come from, and that's, you know, that's that's what I love." But she has, you know, she's got a, she's got a very very good singing voice. But what makes this better? It's not just that she can sing; it's that she actually does the, you know, the slight the aging rocker thing really well uh okay so i'm trying to normally by this
2: time i know what movie of the week is going to be okay and i think i think it could be a dead heat actually, okay between cartel land
1: and lucky <laughs> and the Flash. but anyway are you done have you got more no no i know i'd like to i'd like no, to carry to transport on a refuel if that's all right You've got five minutes okay so transporter refueled um I'm not sure what the point of having a Jason, uh, a Jason Statham movie without Jason Statham is. So the whole point about the Transporter series... I love Jason Statham, as I think this show understands... At uh, uh, Wittertainment, we are fans of Jason Statham. So Jason Statham did three Transporter movies. I know somebody don't, some people don't like three. I actually think three is... I think three has some of the best Transporter scenes in it. However, Jason having now moved on to other things, uh, they've decided to reboot the Transporter series. So Ed Green comes along and he has is given the... I have have to say rather thankless task of stepping into jason statham's suit and jason statham's car and uh, this time the uh, adventure plays out in the riviera where main action consists of him driving around three bewigged platinum blondes intent on wreaking high-tech revenge on the pimps who once hideously exploited them. There is a subplot about his father, played by Ray Stevenson, being kidnapped in order to make him do what he doesn't want to do. Here's a clip.
2: So what's your plan? Well, I was going to give this a surprise, but since you asked, I've been thinking about buying that. That's a nice fishing boat.
3: For a guy with a worker's pension. Junior, I don't think you have one ounce of wriggle room to moralize to me about how I earn my living. And what do you mean by that? Oh, nothing. I'm sure all your clients are movie stars, captains of industry dignitaries.
1: Well, I don't ask, they don't tell.
3: I should tell you something. Oh, look, uh, Miss Unknown is calling again. And what would make you think that unknown is a miss? I'm just guessing. Hello? This is (laughs) the (laughs) transporter.
1: There's uh, something in the press notes that says that what they were trying to do this time was to uh, was to deepen the character and give the character backstory and sort of because the whole point before was, he was kind of two dimensional. Actually, what they wanted was three dimensional. Rookie mistake. Absolutely rookie mistake. The big problem with this is, is that it ends up looking like, a, you know, an advert for a particular brand of car. And you keep thinking, actually, all this does is demonstrate exactly what it was that was great about the Transporter movies was Jason Statham. I think it would have, you know, the the, the car chases are as inconsequential as ever. People get run off the road, nobody cares. There's a bit with with a car and a plane, but we've kind of seen all that stuff before done with Fast and the Furious. But the most important thing is that the fight sequences lack personality. And it's a, It's very easy to imagine that the fight sequences in all action movies are just fight sequences. But in fact, fight sequences are like dance sequences. They have their own rhythms, they have their own personalities, and it's very much down to to the performer. Jason Statham is a superbly physical actor. He may not be the world's greatest, uh, you know, thespian in terms of his vocal delivery, although as he demonstrated in Spy, actually he's supremely uh, conscious of his own image and his own limitations, and he can can play with them when when given the chance to do so. In the transporter movies, it's all to do with the way in which Statham moves. Moves, the way in which he's you know he's just a joy to watch unfortunately you don't get that here it's not that it's particularly bad performance it's just that it's like watching a covers band it's like watching uh you know a a, a reunion of some famous rock group but without the without the guy that everybody paid to see so what well, All you get is some car chases, a huge advert for a particular brand of car, some sort of nonsensical stuff which looks like an outtake from a Robert Palmer 1980s NAF pop video, and a notable absence of Jason Statham and his oil wrestling finesse.
2: OK, so uh, I'm trying... <laughs> well, that's not going to be Movie of the Week. That is definitely not going to be Movie of the Week. So you have 60 seconds to uh, bring in any okay. last-minute considerations. Otherwise, I'm going to definitely go for a Ricky in the flat.
1: OK, so very quickly in that case, I'll do No Escape. So No Escape from the Brothers Dowdle, who gave us uh, As Above, So Below. Owen Wilson takes his family to a non-specific Southeast Asian hotel, which is immediately besieged by revolting hordes. Uh, he and his family have to escape from them. Uh, there is... Is at the beginning a kind of bravura button pushing sequence in which the family are attempting to escape off the top of the hotel and it's you know it's it's it, it's precipitous and it's children in danger and it's put together in a very sort of efficient nuts and bolts fashion that works on an absolutely sort of you know brutal level however the problem with the film is Piers Brosnan is the gurning Brit who, who, who when you, you meet him and he's pretending to be a drunk it's no surprise whatsoever to find out that he is so much more than that the problem with the film is it has that kind of old Old school retro retrograde worldview of screaming xenophobia that despite all the speeches that are put in there intended to undercut the idea that actually it's nice westerners versus scary foreigners that's exactly what the movie ends up being and after that sort of opening Brevira sequence it just descends into that kind of shrieking old school us versus them stuff that we just aren't interested in it okay. anymore.
2: Okay, I'm going to say Movie of the Week is Cartel Land and Ricky in the Flash.
1: And you would be absolutely right. A dead heat, there you yes. go. Very good, Mark. I thought you were, I thought you were particularly uh, chirpy. But you know why that is? It's because, uh, you know, I'm in Shetland. and it Have you done
2: so your cool. naked swim yet?
1: That's tomorrow. It's, it's, uh, well, t- two things. Firstly, it's not naked. That's just something which you've completely made up. It all it, it's the the Shetland Swim Challenge. Somebody tweeted this morning, oh, good, it's that annual show in which Simon forgets that Mark is in Shetland this time every year, and Mark bores us with that story about the beach where you swim yeah, on two true. sides of the thing. But it's, there's nothing naked about it at all, Simon. No, I mean, not it, it, until this year, where apparently it's the big innovation.
2: It's, no, 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 it isn't. Everyone so, is demanding that's the way it previous happens.
1: Previous swimmers include Jason. There was, there was the year that Jason Isaacs and Julian Temple did it, and Jason looked like, you know... He's, you know, Jason in swimming trunks. He's like a sort of craft dairy lee turned upside down, you know, the, the triangular. He's, he's just incredibly, incredibly buff because he was just doing that TV show. And then Julian Temple, who looks fantastic. And then me, I just look like, well, I look like the old guy out of Up. And there is a, <laughs> okay. a photograph of us. Anyway, so, but yes, we're doing all that tomorrow.
2: Uh, Sophie's been on. I was introduced to your show by my mum two years ago. Hello. I've been an avid listener uh, ever since. I find it so refreshing to hear a critic empathize with the importance of how women are portrayed in the media today. My mum and I love discussing your show, especially uh, the rants, uh, our all-time favourite being Mamma Mia. Uh, However, I am moving out today in the words of Carol Bayer-Sager, I've just introduced that bit, okay. and leaving my home in Norway to study at St Andrews. Because of this, I'll be avoiding Inside Out until I stop feeling homesick, thanks to a tip from another listener, which I think was last week. Hope me give my mum Fiona a big shout-out, tell her I love her, even though we'll be in different countries, we'll still have the same good doctors looking after us.
1: Uh, hello to, to all. Can we have Carol Bayer-Sager's Moving Out on the Wittertainment playlist? Yeah, I reckon that's pretty good. Actually that's that's that, hey. How many of the things that he has to take with him can you remember? Pack all your toys 61 away. Sixty one cassettes. Your some sixty your sixty one cassettes, your your water bed that leaks your, photo of the queen. Photo of the queen, your something of James your poster of James Dean, your something tie dyes, the old tie dyes. Pack up your old tie dyes. Your kit bag And then it's please leave my Anyway, no, I'd love to hear that again, because I'm now going to okay, be racking great. my brains about it. Actually, so we about, have that's, got some... that's a great song. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Best backing. Remember, that's the backing voice.
2: I do absolutely yeah. remember it, although it was almost unrecognisable from the way you
1: did it. Remember and and that like, bit when she, co- she starts to go... I hate to do it. I hate to do it. I hate to do it. I hate it. I just can't
2: take it. Who needs the original when you've exactly. got Mark's uh, skiffly version? I
1: didn't realise how much I like that song.
2: We've got, We have got some music to play now because yes. you were talking uh, about Ricky and the Flash. Ricky and the Flash. Uh, being a covers band. Well, we've got a whole minute of uh, their version of Doby Gray's uh, Drift Away. Let's rock. OK, here's Bill uh, Bryant.
3: Look for the light through the pouring rain You know that's a game that I hate to lose Feeling the stray In the shade. Oh, Give me the beat for to free my
0: soul I want to get lost in your rock and roll and drift away
2: Uh, with uh, Marilyn and lead vocals. That's, that's
1: a great sound. song. Sounded fine. That is a really good song.
2: Okay, so uh, before we go, I think it's time for DVD of the Week. Yes. <laughs> yes, you can. Yes. You can construct your very own collection of the best VHS, Laserdisc and video cart releases. Video cart. Week-by-week, Mark's simple step-by-step guide will point you towards the best films on release to add to your own commemorative Burmese teak display unit, free in future (laughs) issue sometime. Maybe. Ian Triffitt says... I think Mark's going to pick Girlhood, which would be the film on that list I'd like to see the most. Lee Patton says... I would go for Dog Day Afternoon, but Mark will choose Girlhood, as he's been championing it for quite a while. Robin Bales, I've seen none of these films that you've got on the list here, not even Dog Day Afternoon, I feel shame. But Mark will pick Girlhood. Gregory Young, Girlhood will be the selection, although Unfriended has a certain B-movie charm. And who can resist a 40th anniversary edition of Dog Day Afternoon? Well, let's find out. Mark, what is... DVD of the week
1: well DVD of the week is of course girlhood because um, you know ever since it came out in UK cinemas I have been championing it. I thought it was terrific Celine CMR's uh, depiction of life in the banlieue it's a portrait of teenage girls and to some extent it's been sort of mischaracterized as a, as a girl gangs movie but the the best thing about it is it the, you know f- fantastic performances by Kitura who is brilliant as the central character and it follows her through a series of changes in her life in which she adopts a series of different identities kind of defined by the friends with whom she hangs out and what i like most about it is absolutely clear that the director both knows and loves the people that she's dealing with there's 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 no sense of exploitation in this it's a very very different uh, portrait of that environment than you've seen on screen before i mean the obvious comparison would be something like Maciej Kasetvic's La in which is that whole kind of grimy monochrome gritty feel this is actually a very a very bright and celebratory film in its color palette it's also supremely sympathetic to uh, its characters terrific performances by the characters by the, by the uh, uh, actors all of whom are well, largely are newcomers who were found through street casting calls and that's absolutely paid dividends I thought it was terrific I really really liked it it was you know genuine in France it's released as Bon de fille and uh, the, the English title obviously draws some kind of comparison with that's to some extent, I suppose, uh, Richard Link- Linklater's Boyhood, and you also, I think, for a British audience, you would think of althood and adulthood as well. Um, there's Noel Clark films. I know the first one was directed by I shooter, but Col- Noel Clarke uh, was the driving force behind them. I think they are interesting kind of companion pieces to this, but I think mm-hmm. this is really something else. It's, it's uh, one of the top films of the year for me. I, I absolutely loved it. However, I would also like to say I like Unfriended very much, and the idea of watching Unfriended at home... Uh, perhaps on a laptop would a- add a whole other meta-textuality level to it because it's a film in which... Meta-textuality? Whole... Yeah, it's a film in which the whole film plays out on the laptop screens of its protagonists. And whereas so many horror movies nowadays you know are kind of lazy in their construction they have a central conceit that seems to be a good idea and then halfway through they just kind of abandon it and just have some guy running around in a house or just you know going from one set piece to another. Unfriended works brilliantly because the bogeyman in Unfriended is the computer screen. The central question is these people are all being terrorised on the internet why don't they just log off? Why don't they just put and they don't and it's actually that's what the what the film is about and the other thing I'd like to say is because you flagged it up the uh, anniversary reissue of Dog Day afternoon i did um and on stage with al pacino some months ago in which we're looking back over his whole career and uh you know panic in needle park and something and it is it is extraordinary when you look at a movie like dog day afternoon firstly to think you know would would it be possible to make a movie like that anymore and secondly just what a great actor Pacino is when he's completely immersed in a role. He you utterly believe him whether it's that or whether it's Serpico or whether it's as I said Panic and Needle Park. He was, you know, magical and, and lit up the screen. But my choice for this week, for your DVD collection to own and build is girlhood. So
2: pack your toys away, your pretty boys away, your 45s away, your alibis away, your Spanish flies away, your one more tries away, your old tie dies away, you're moving out today. Pack up your rubber duck, I'd like to wish you luck, your funny cigarettes, your 61 cassettes, pack all your clothes away, your rubber hose away, (laughs) your old day glows away, pack up your dirty looks, your songs that have no hooks, your stacks of modern screen, your portrait of 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 the the queen. Queen. Your mangy cat away, your baby fat away, you're headed that away. Now, that's a good line. That's fantastic. Pack up your fork and spoon. Please leave my Lorna Dunes. Please leave my
1: Lorna Dune. That was the thing of it. Please leave my Lorna dunes. Your map of Mozambique, your Your waterbed that leaks. leaks. There you go. How
2: about that? Oh, wow. Let's finish with it. Let's finish with it. Because that's quite enough of us because we've gone on like forever. Forever. So we'll finish with a bit of Carol Bayer Sega. Thanks for listening.
0: of the state you were in May I remind you that it's been all year since then yeah, yeah, yeah. Today the landlady she said to
1: me What did she say? Your
0: loony friend just made a pass
1: at me in the
3: Perhaps you might enjoy
4: digital
0: and online this is bbc radio 5 live bbc.co.uk 5 live